From WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana, I'm Kate Young, and this is Earth Eats. As the host of a food show with a growing emphasis on food justice, I'm always a bit conflicted when Thanksgiving rolls around. And I know I'm not the only one. So Leho, food critic for the San Francisco Chronicle, wrote about it this week in her newsletter, Bite Curious. I love the tradition of gathering around a table of good food and contemplating what we're grateful for. But I can't ignore our nation's troubled history with the indigenous people of North America and just cover that up with cheery recipes for sweet potatoes or cranberry sauce. So I don't have any holiday recipes this time, but we'll give thanks for orchards and nut groves. We'll celebrate a farm in North Carolina that puts the African-American experience front and center. And we'll revisit a complicated conversation with Amanda Nicky about holiday food drives. It's all coming up on Earth Eats, so do stay with us. Hello, Renee. What's the news? Hi, Kate. We've got some grim news about farming today. Nine Midwest states have declared emergencies due to shortages of propane, which farmers need to dry soggy crops harvested late in the season. Spring flooding this year caused many farmers to plant later than usual, and that has pushed harvest season into the wetter months of fall. Farmers use propane in grain dryers to reduce moisture levels in grain crops before selling to markets or storing. Soggy grain takes more energy to dry. Early cold temperatures have overlapped with the drying season, causing a spike in demand for propane from homes and heated barns for livestock as propane-fueled grain dryers kick into gear. The shortage does not affect the whole country, but unexpected demand has caused transport delays as propane tankers line up to reach the Midwest from other parts of the country. Corn-growing states depend on a network of pipelines, trains, and trucks to keep the propane flowing. On November 1st, the Federal Motor Carrier Safety Administration declared a regional emergency for Illinois, Iowa, Kansas, Minnesota, Missouri, Nebraska, South Dakota, and Wisconsin. Several governors have declared their own states of emergency. The emergency declarations help companies to expand hours of service and lift load restrictions on delivery vehicles. Midwestern farm communities are already grappling with rising bankruptcy rates, declining income, and flagging exports due to the U.S.-China trade war. Wisconsin and the dairy industry have long been synonymous, but a stunning increase in dairy farm closures may soon change that. Trade wars, rock-bottom milk prices, and increased costs in farm equipment have hit dairy farmers hard in the past few years. Though milk prices went up this year, for many, the reprieve was too little, too late. In the past year, 48 Wisconsin dairy farmers filed for Chapter 12 farm bankruptcy, the most in the country. The number of dairy farmers in the state has dropped nearly 50% in the past 15 years. Along with record farm closures, a record 915 suicides were reported in Wisconsin in 2017. While exact numbers of farmer suicides aren't clear, many suspect the parallel increases are linked. A 2017 report from the Centers for Disease Control said farmers are committing suicide at twice the rate of veterans. I'm Renee Reed, and that's our news. Thanks to Chad Bouchard and Taylor Killo for those stories. Thanks, Renee. You're welcome, Kate.
Here in Bloomington, Indiana, we're lucky to have a community orchard. The Bloomington Community Orchard is an organization that maintains fruit-bearing trees and bushes on a plot of land next to a city park in Bloomington. The trees are planted and cared for by volunteers, and the fruit is freely available to anyone. The orchard is also involved in education programs, community plantings, and fruit tree giveaways. Last year, they partnered with the city of Bloomington to plant a nut tree grove on a piece of land between the YMCA and the Winslow Little League baseball fields, just a stone's throw away from the orchard's main site. It's a grassy, gentle slope just off of a jogging path and in view of an upscale subdivision to the east. They planted the grove in stages, with the third and final planting during Memorial Day weekend a couple of weeks ago. Earth Eats was on site for the first planting session on Earth Day in 2018. When I arrived, Ashley Thomas was mixing up some soil amendment packs for each tree. Yeah, so we have a rock phosphate, we have a pelletized gypsum, and green sand. Ashley is the partner plantings manager for the community orchard, and she's organizing this planting event with a group of volunteers. The volunteers have been digging holes for the trees as instructed, and Ashley is now demonstrating how to get the trees planted. You notice it's much wider than the tree itself. And like I was saying earlier, we want to perforate the sides so that the roots will also spread out. We also have these amendments already bagged out. And then it's time to pull the tree from the pot and set it in the hole. And just kind of gently loosen it. You don't want to tug too hard on it. So I kind of massage like squeeze on the sides here until it loosens up. A good way to measure how deep you want it is taking this level to the ground. Now you can see the soil line is way lower than we want it to be. With the new tree sitting in the middle of the hole, Ashley lays a shovel handle across the hole to show where the soil line will be once the hole is filled in. You don't want the soil to go above the line where it already has been when the tree was in the pot. So we got the right depth, take the tree back out, and we're going to spread these amendments all, all into the hole here. That way it really helps facilitate that root growth, nutrient intake, all of that. So we got it in the right depth. I'm just going to fill it in with soil here. It's a good idea to be filling it with water as you're filling it in with soil. These are great, thank you water. So I just kind of add a little bit, add a little bit more soil. And you do want to be generous with the water when you first plant it. It really is going to help set it up, get it really situated into the spot. You gently tamp it. Next, Ashley dresses the top of the soil with a layer of compost. Then it's time for mulch. The volunteers mulch each tree with wood chips piled near the path. But you want to make sure it's not right up against the tree, at least six inches out away from the base of the tree. And we do pretty wide, kind of like a donut. And you want to do about six, four or six inches tall. So it's pretty good amount of mulch per tree. But you want to make sure there's a good distance between the mulch ring and the base of the tree itself. It's going to keep a lot of this grass from growing back in it, but it's also going to help retain some of the water in the soil Does anybody have any questions? Planting fruit trees always strikes me as a hopeful act. It's looking to the future. Not like when you plant something like zucchini or carrots. 
I mean, you have to wait a bit for the carrots to grow, but you'll harvest them that season. With a cherry tree, it's going to be a while before you're making cherry pie. Years. And with nut trees, it's an even longer wait. I spoke with Danny Onsalto, who's been working with the orchard for years, and I asked her how long it would be before these trees would be producing. You know, um, it's going to be a few years. <laughs> yeah. Um, my hazelnut bushes, I think I started being able to gather the hazelnuts between seven and nine years. I can't remember exactly. Why do you think it's important to plant trees like this that you're not really, maybe you won't be someone who's harvesting from them? That's true. Yeah, we have a couple of those in the, the orchard too, the Korean pines in the orchard. They're probably going to be, we'll be able to harvest from them in like 50 years. So that's quite a few generations from now that we'll get to benefit from them. But I really think it's important for us to plant trees and just let our kids and our grandkids eat from them and learn from them. And, you know, they also just will offer a lot to the environment just with having something to soak up extra water and help with erosion and take up space where grass was going to grow so we don't have to mow as much. I asked another community orchard volunteer, Josh David, how long he thought it would take for the trees to bear fruit, or in, in this case, nuts. You know, I think what I know and uh, still learning um, is that nut trees take a little bit longer than fruit trees typically. Um, I think fruit trees, you can expect them to produce their first harvest in the first five years or so, whereas I think nut trees take maybe, you know, seven to ten, sometimes even longer if they're a standard size tree, right? So dwarf trees and semi-dwarfs as just smaller trees overall will start producing sooner than standard trees, whereas most nut trees, um, especially these that we're planting today, are standard size, so they'll be bigger, so they may take a little bit longer. Why would you want to come out here and plant trees that you may not even be able to harvest from? Um, the idea is once they're once they're in and they're producing, you know, they'll be producing for, you know, 50, 70 years. So, you know, the trees that we're planting today, we may never meet the people that will eat them, but um, we'll certainly, hopefully, they'll think back fondly on the people that came out here and sweated and got their hands in the soil today to make sure that the community had a few more, you know, free access to local food. It's good for the community, it's good for all of us, you know, so the more people that know what they can grow around here, right, I think today, today we're planting hazelnuts and walnuts and pecans and almonds, and so just, you know, most people don't even necessarily think about those as things you can plant here, right, so part of it's just uh, helping them appreciate what can be done and maybe what they can even do in their own yards and lives. Uh, part of it is just appreciating the fact that the, the local government here wants to, you know, use public land to give back to the community, educationally um, and in terms of the harvest. So we're just happy, you know, and honored to be a part of that. The act of planting trees is hopeful and forward-thinking for some of the volunteers. But I asked four-year-old volunteer Zahir what he was looking forward to, and it wasn't the harvest that might be seven to ten years away. I want to, I just want to go home and eat some noodles, but my stomach is growling. Some needs are just more pressing than others. Come to think of it, noodles sound pretty good right about now. Find out more about the Bloomington Community Orchard and how you can get involved on our website, eartheats.org.
Production support comes from Bill Brown at Griffey Creek Studio, architectural design and consulting for residential, commercial, and community projects. Sustainable, energy positive, and resilient design for a rapidly changing world. Bill at GriffeyCreek.studio. Elizabeth Rue, enrolled agent with Personal Financial Services, assisting businesses and individuals with tax preparation and planning for over 15 years. More at personalfinancialservices.net. And insurance agent Dan Williamson of Bill Resch Insurance, offering comprehensive auto, business, and home coverage in affiliation with Pekin Insurance. Beyond the expected. More at 812-336-6838. Between merging two bee colonies and stopping by the tractor supply store, farmer, educator, and activist Kamal Bell took the time to sit down with Josephine McRobbie to talk about the story behind Sankofa Farms. A nature lover and animal fanatic since childhood, Kamal Bell initially went to college to become a veterinarian. My dad has like a book collection that can rival like anything in my mind. And one of the books that he always suggested I read was The Message to the Black Man in America by Elijah Muhammad. And what I learned in that book was that, and I had to question myself, is like, what am I doing for black people? And that's when I was like, you know, I want to become a farmer. Kamal ended up switching his major to animal sciences and industry. He worked on North Carolina A&T's campus farm, got his master's degree, and started teaching middle school. He also began envisioning a place where he could grow food to combat food insecurity in Black communities. Kamal is now the CEO of Sankofa Farms and its associated teaching program in Eflin, North Carolina. It was clear to him when starting the farm just how little some people knew about the history of Black people and land ownership in the U.S. And that's a part of our story that I don't think people really understand. It's like, oh, did you get the farm? Was it passed on your family? I'm like, no. And it kind of just stops. I don't think we realize how hard it is, like as a black man, especially, to go through the USDA to acquire land to teach black students. In 2016, Kamal received a USDA direct farm ownership loan to start Sankofa Farms on 12 acres of land. He secured additional funding to help the farm get set up with big ticket equipment, like observation beehives and a caterpillar tunnel for crops. Farming isn't difficult is getting the infrastructure to produce food. That's the hang up in farming. So, well, then the land too. So the land, then infrastructure. So you need a well, you need equipment, you know, all these different things. And acquiring those things is very difficult. But once you get it, you can learn it and you can tweak your system that fits you. So it's not a specific system that works for all farmers. It's what works for you. The Agricultural Academy at Sankofa is a mentorship and skill building STEM program for African-American young men. Lessons are available everywhere at the academy. And anybody who has a farming background knows that you can't do anything by yourself. Or, well, you can, but it takes a long time. It takes a lot out of you. That's like the number one thing that gets the students is that, like, you're not an individual. You can't be an individual on the farm. And we've had to, like, slowly introduce that to the youth just because, like, the like if you go on the farm and you try to do something, you're not aware of people around you. You get hurt and you hurt other people. So that creates a sense of responsibility. The teamwork aspect does as well. So just being able to introduce different activities to the students, you'll get a leadership aspect, you'll get the science aspect or the STEM aspect, you'll tie in all the different aspects because agriculture does that by by 
just how it functions. The farm focuses on vegetable crops and beekeeping. So we have 15 beehives and along with myself, four of the students are all certified beekeepers with the youngest certified beekeeper being 12. There's a reason Kamal thinks bees are so approachable, even though they might worry the kids at first. Everybody has interacted with a bee at some point in their life. So it's really familiar whether you've been stung by one or you didn't even sting or you've been chased by one or you've seen them um, in nature or in the environment or anywhere. Like, I think that's just something that people take to very, very well. So I think it's just more familiar than like a pig or a chicken. Like You might see those on like TV, but actually being able to interact with honeybees is something that a lot of people have done over just like your, your traditional livestock. So that's something that they, that they really take on to. And they're like, oh, Mr. Bud, it's real cool. I might work with some bees. So just seeing students get over their initial fear of working with animals and livestock is really cool. In addition to teaching farming, the Sankofa Academy runs an Airbnb agritourism program called Bees in the Trap, and Kamal encourages students to participate in public speaking engagements. He says these additional experiences help students prepare for careers in industries like agriculture that are undergoing major shifts. I want them not to think about agriculture as just being a farmer, because that doesn't exist anymore. Just doing one thing doesn't exist in any industry. Sankofa Farms and the Duke World Food Policy Center were recently awarded a major service learning grant from the USDA. The grant team will develop a curriculum for fifth grade students that aims to improve health outcomes through learning about food traditions and agriculture. So we really just want more so capture the journey and tell the story of African-Americans and people of African descent and our contribution to agriculture in the grand scheme, and then also to focus and narrow it down to the South here in the, in the United States. Kamal hopes that the hidden histories of nutrition and Black culture will yield surprises for students and make them feel connected to what they eat and how it fuels their bodies. And the more you look into the whole soul food aspect and the food traditions, you see that they're more so vegan than anything else. So I, that was really interesting to me. Working with animals and land means a lot to Kamal, and it ends up meaning a lot to the students as well. It seems like when you introduce animals to students and they figure out that they can work with them, it just opens up just a whole vast amount of opportunities for them just because they usually don't have the, like urban youth usually don't have the opportunities that other students would have, like especially African-American boys. So just being able to bring things to them front and center is something that allows their minds to start working where they can see themselves. I, you know, I can work with animals. I can work with plants. I can work with bees. I can see myself building things. I can um, see myself being an engineer. It just really brings them into, like, really, like, just, and I, they have a place. It really just helps them identify a place. The farm will soon be solidifying its place in a new way. Kamal's brother is currently working on a children's book. It's titled Khalil's Day at Sankofa, named after Kamal's eldest son. It reiterates a lot of things, too, just about, like, this positive imagery of Black people in agriculture, because you don't see that at all, especially from a kid's perspective. And we might probably be the first Black farmers with a Black, like a Black children's book around farming. Thanks to producer Josephine McRobbie for that story. This time of year, in communities across the country, schools and businesses will be collecting cans for food drives. It's an American tradition during the holidays to balance feast planning and shopping trips with plans to help others, 
and to share good fortune with those experiencing hard times. In recent years, though, I've come across criticism of the food drive approach as an inefficient method for getting food to people experiencing food insecurity. All those cans and boxes need to be checked and sorted. Plus, agencies can obtain more food for less money through the food banking system, so individuals paying retail prices for food is a waste of money. It's better, the argument goes, to give money directly to trusted organizations. Amanda Nicky is the president and CEO of Mother Hubbard's Cupboard, a community food resource center in Bloomington, Indiana. The hub, as it's referred to locally, offers food assistance through a food pantry, garden and nutrition education programs, plus an advocacy program addressing root causes of hunger and offering policy education and civic engagement opportunities for hub community members. I sat down with Amanda in our studio for her thoughts on holiday food drives. Many people do feel inspired to run a food drive either at their place of business or at a school, just gathering up those canned goods and uh, non-perishables and and bringing them into the the food bank or the food pantry. Is this the best approach if people really want to have an impact? I think it depends. I think the answer can be yes. If there's intention on the kinds of foods that you're collecting. So there's kind of this deeper level of change that can happen if you take your kids out to the grocery store and you say, we're going to spend $25 on food for other people, and I want you to think about things that other people might like and keep in mind the kinds of things that you like because other people are like you. Um, I think there's a really good lesson there to be learned, um, and that has an impact on on you, it has an impact on your children, it has an impact on the, the people they might talk about that experience with. It'll have an impact on their children when they remember that experience and, and want to recreate that for their own kids. Um, it might make them think about people who are different um, or people who have less than they do um, in a way that's more humanizing. So I, I think that, yes, food drives have their place. But if we're if we're talking in in terms of just efficiency, you know, for for a pantry of our size that's serving, um, you know, thousands of people a week, a handful of cans is you know kind of a drop in the bucket in terms of the amount of food that we're putting out. Um, and because of our uh, relationship with our local food bank, we're able to you know leverage a dollar to get many more pounds of food than one individual might be able to do at the grocery store. Um, so I think there, there are a couple of ways to look at that question, um, a couple of ways to answer that question, and it kind of really depends on um, what your goal is. I asked Amanda, let's say the goal is to get the most bang for your buck. Is it better to give money to organizations like hers to purchase food through the food bank, or should people buy food at the grocery store and donate it to a food drive? I'll clarify that we don't purchase the food from the food bank. We are able to get more food for a dollar than most people are. We pay a shared maintenance charge to the food bank for certain items that are in, that are in their warehouse. And a lot of a lot of the fresh food and healthier foods we actually get for free. So I think people can also think about in terms of supporting organizations like Mother Hubbard's Cupboard or or other organizations in town that are providing emergency food services, think beyond just the food. Think about the people who are putting it on the shelves, the people who are sorting it, the people who are preparing it in the kitchens. 
the staff time that goes into doing all of that work, the um, rent or mortgage payments that we might have for our facilities, the utilities, you know, we have to have heat, we need electricity. Um, that Those are expenses that are just as important for people to think about and to support. Um, that just the, the, the food items alone, they, they don't happen on their own. They're, you know, if you give us a can, a can of green beans or a can of tomatoes, it's not making it out on that shelf by itself. Um, there's a lot of things that have to happen behind the scenes for, for the programs to run. We talked about the importance of retaining skilled staff to carry out the programming. And Nikki said she didn't want her employees to need to use the food pantry services they provide. As the leader of the organization, it's, it's important to me that our staff is adequately compensated. And so fair wages are something that we strive for. And it's part of our strategic plan. We, we want employees to feel supported and taken care of. There's a difference between being providing efficient services and um, being fair to our employees and providing efficient services kind of on the backs of our employees. Amanda talked about how efficiency isn't the only thing to consider when it comes to holiday giving. We have um, models for food drives that we share with people who are interested in, in running a food drive for us. And some of what we talk about is just the joy that can be found in a special food. You know, just some kind of treat that when you are really making decisions about whether you can afford food or gas this week, that might do, do more than just kind of feed, you, feed your body. Having access to something that's special or a treat might really just help you mentally, help you get through the day. You know, we, I like chocolate. It helps me <laughs> get through the day. And, and so being able to have food that, that can be joyful is really important. Yeah, I think some of the criticism that I've seen around food drives has been, oh, so you're just emptying out your cupboards of the things that you know you're never going to eat. Can of green beans that's been stuck at the back of the cupboard gathering dust. And that what you're suggesting is why don't you actually think about the people who are receiving it, not just what's your extra thing that you're not going to use. Right, and, and use it as use it as a um, an opportunity or a practice to think about others for that time and not necessarily just thinking about how it makes you feel or clearing up the, the space in your cabinets or whatever, um, or feeling better about the food that you didn't eat and now it's not gonna go to waste. Um, be, be intentional and think about the recipients. That was Amanda Nicky of Mother Hubbard's Cupboard, a community food resource center in Bloomington, Indiana. You can find more from my conversation with Amanda and her colleague, Stephanie Solomon, talking about the importance of challenging dominant narratives around hunger. Those conversations are linked on our website, eartheats.org. The Earth Eats team includes Ayoban Binder, Chad Bouchard, Mark Chilla, Abraham Hill, Taylor Killo, Josephine McRobbie, Daniel Orr, the IU Food Institute, Harvest Public Media, and me, Renee Reed. Our theme music is composed by Aaron Toby and performed by Aaron and Matt Toby. Earth Eats is produced and edited by Kate Young, and our executive producer is John Bailey. Special thanks this week to Kamal Bell, Amanda Nicky, Ashley Thomas, Danny Ansaldo, Josh David, and Zaire. Production support comes from insurance agent Dan Williamson of Bill Rush Insurance. 
offering comprehensive auto, business, and home coverage in affiliation with Pekin Insurance. Beyond the expected. More at 812-336-6838. Bill Brown at Griffey Creek Studio, architectural design and consulting for residential, commercial, and community projects. Sustainable, energy-positive, and resilient design for a rapidly changing world. Bill at GriffeyCreek.studio. And Elizabeth Rue, enrolled agent providing customized financial services for individuals, businesses, and disabled adults, including tax planning, bill paying, and estate services. More at personalfinancialservices.net. Mm-hmm.